0: Austin Givens joins us today. He is Professor of Cybersecurity at Utica University. He's the editor of the International Journal of Cybersecurity Intelligence and Cybercrime. He is also co-author of Homeland Security, An Introduction, the subject of which is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Givens.
1: Thank you for having me, Mark.
0: Uh, do you want to give a quick quick credit to your co-author?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, My co-authors, Nathan Bush, our mutual friend at Christopher Newport University, uh, as well as Alan Burson, who is at Harvard, uh, as well as with the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington, were instrumental contributors to this project. Uh, So this is their success as much as mine, and I'm deeply grateful for them.
0: Very good. Very good. Well, first of all, I I have a problem question to bring up about your field which is why we need people like you so much. And that is when we talk about cybersecurity, cybersecurity studies, how can we study something when the technology moves so doggone quickly (laughs) that it seems to produce fresh tools, unforeseen threats every month? Am I exaggerating here?
1: no you're not uh, It is challenging for people who are deep in the weeds, even to keep up with this stuff precisely for the reasons that you've outlined. If I were to point to you know just one uh, example of a trend line that's been especially challenging over the past several years, it's the rise of cryptocurrencies and the attendant problems associated with them uh, International transnational criminal organizations use cryptocurrencies to move currency in ways that are very difficult to detect, unlike previous generations in which they use things like wire transfers or just all cash transactions. And so the cybersecurity community is contributing to addressing this problem by developing new analytical tools and working shoulder to shoulder with intelligence agencies as well as law enforcement agencies uh, to try to run investigations that may involve cryptocurrencies. Um, But the techniques that bad actors use are ever evolving, um, as are the tools that folks who are investigating these things are trying to use to investigate. So there's a bit of a cat and mouse game that's constantly happening. And that's just in this one narrow area that falls under the broader auspices of, of what we might term cybersecurity. Uh, so you're exactly right.
0: Uh, th- this just pops into my head. I've been reading a little bit about the whole uh, crypto currency scandal from last fall, the Sam Bankman-Fried scandal, the FTX uh, uh, thing. I mean, reading about it, you you see these people, the high-level people dealing in in the cryptocurrency. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about tens of millions in dollars here, there. I mean, there's so much money moving around so quickly. Was there any cybersecurity issue in that case that you know of i don't i i didn't see that raised with with ftx or not but it gave me an insight into just just what kind of volume of transfer and the fact that all this stuff was going on for quite a bit of time before anyone really raised questions about it is that a, is that a cybersecurity issue
1: To some extent, that is a cybersecurity issue, Mark, Um, but part of it is also just the the fiduciary responsibility that a guy like Sam Bankman-Fried has to people who are storing their money with him and his organization, FTX. Um, From the public interviews that he gave, such as to the Wall Street Journal, for example, it becomes rather clear that this was a bit of a, I want to use the term Ponzi scheme loosely, but akin to a Ponzi scheme. Um, in the sense that there is sort of an organized, systematic effort to set up this elaborate financial infrastructure. uh, But in the end, its it's ultimate aim appears to have been simply to enrich Bankman-Fried and his top lieutenants within FTX. Um, So there's a security component to that uh, in the sense that certain cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, rivals, if you will, to FTX, have suffered data breaches or sudden loss of funds in the past. And because these entities are not regulated in the way that, say, banks or credit unions are, uh, there's very little recourse for consumers in the way that there would be at a bank or at a credit union or at an investment house. Um, But beyond that, I mean, there's just fundamental nuts and bolts of uh, the financial world and doing business in a, a forthright ethical, honest way. And at least with respect to FDX, it seems pretty clear that Bankman Fried uh, and his close associates uh didn't really aspire to help their customers, their clients achieve their financial dreams. Uh that wasn't part of the plan.
0: Yeah, and uh, no sense of uh homeland patriotism security in, the, in in those people is there? They're they're all global, right? They think they think they don't think in terms of national National interest, it's all global, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's certainly true as well, I think. Um, You know, you bring up the the P word, patriotism. And um, that's very um, keen, I think, in the context of our conversation, because a lot of what uh, I and my colleagues, Nathan Bush and Alan Burson, have tried to do in Homeland Security and Introduction is tried to sort of subtly impart to readers the value of that seemingly old-fashioned concept. Um, Patriotism as a term, as you know, has been kind of weaponized, let's say, over the past couple of decades. But I'd like to think that there is still a nucleus of sorts of public servants, people in business, ordinary citizens who are still deeply patriotic and love this country and want to do what they can to protect it, to preserve our way of life, and to transmit that. To the next generation.
0: Uh, So so, yeah, let's get to move to the book. The homeland security. Just how much of homeland security? I mean, I I don't want you know specific quantifiable, but how much of homeland security? The project is now a matter of cybersecurity, not tanks.
1: I would say that uh, a growing share every day of the Homeland Security mission uh, is centered around cybersecurity. If we had been having this conversation in, say, the year 2003, I would have told you it's maybe 15%. At the moment, I'd say we're in the 75 to 85% range. It has been an absolutely central part of what we term in the book the Homeland Security Enterprise certainly for the past five to 10 years. And again, I see that share only growing over time. But as you also probably know, there's been this slow evolution, both in our understanding of what constitutes Homeland Security, as well as the emphases or foci within the mission set. In the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, of course, it was all about counterterrorism and preventing another 9-11 style attack on the Homeland. Uh, But by 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf, and New Orleans in particular, uh, the mission set sort of shifted emphasis to natural disasters. And it stayed there until around 2010, 2011, I would say. And ever since that point, the emphasis has really been on cybersecurity, electronic security, uh, securing networks, securing systems, securing critical infrastructure. Uh, Because a lot of these critical infrastructure components, power, hospitals, transportation, they're interdependent uh, in a way that non-network systems aren't. So there are specific nodes of vulnerability within those systems um, that have to be studied, analyzed, and those vulnerabilities have to be closed in some way. So uh, it's an ongoing project. And I think if history is any guide, Mark, we're gonna see another evolution in our understanding of Homeland Security as well as emphasis within the enterprise as a whole.
0: Uh, uh, About the growth, Uh, Austin, do we have enough of a a big enough pipeline of people studying and going into this field for us? I mean, is is there a shortage, the shortage issue of personnel who really understand all this and can keep pace?
1: There's a well-documented employment shortage in this area. There's a yawning gap between what the market is demanding and what colleges and universities are able to supply. And I would note parenthetically here, that's not to say that, let's say, an entrepreneurial or highly motivated young person could independently study and learn about the tools and acquire the skills necessary to be a solid contributor in the field. That's true. That is possible. But the sort of traditional pipeline through colleges and universities is still there. It's still highly respected within the field. And there just aren't enough programs teaching this broad skill set, nor are there the numbers of students necessary to meet market demands. And what that ultimately means for graduates of these programs is that they're in the catbird seat. They can command formidable starting salaries, and they enjoy a degree of lateral mobility that's quite impressive.
0: Yeah. Now, when uh, you've talked a little bit, hinted a little bit at at private actors being involved in in the project today of Homeland Security, after 9-11, was it all federal government?
1: The immediate emphasis after 9-11 was very federal-centric. But in the time period between, say, 2001 and 2003, that began to bleed downward through state governments and into localities, municipalities, tribal governments. But then there was kind of a second wave after the Department of Homeland Security really found its feet. It opened its doors operationally in spring 2003. And that was to begin to engage with businesses as well as nonprofit organizations, uh, civil society, let's say, uh, in a way that wasn't done in the immediate wake of 9-11. And that is a trend in which uh, Nathan Bush and I have taken great interest. Uh, We previously co-authored a book that came out in 2014 called The Business of Counterterrorism, Public-Private Partnerships in Homeland Security that explored this trend in great depth. And it seems to us that a couple of things are true and have been borne out by lived experience after nine 11. One is that government at any level cannot hope to achieve or deliver the results necessary to accomplish, let's say the Homeland security mission on its own. That is utterly impossible and plenty of government officials at the federal level, state level, and local level will concede that readily. The second point, I think, is that uh, in some sense, most of what we understand to be the homeland security enterprise, the broad societal undertaking to prevent bad things from happening in the United States, uh, the costs of that are largely borne by businesses and nonprofits and civil society. So there's a bit of a, a kind of two-way street going on here. One is that there's this growing recognition that government just can't get it done by itself. And oh, by the way, it's mostly not government at all. It's the private sector. It's nonprofits. It's civil society that have to step up and and do the work necessary to keep us safe.
0: Yeah. Now I'm I, I may be asking you to reveal a military secret, Austin. But but was there any any particular reason that Amazon chose for its uh, one of its new headquarters just across the road from the Pentagon?
1: I don't know about any sinister motives other than possibly financing another rocket launch from Jeff Bezos. But uh, I do believe that was a shrewd business decision on the part of Amazon. Uh, They, as you and listeners may know, have expanded drastically into the cloud computing space. For example, if you have a Netflix subscription and you watch films or TV shows you like on Netflix, the data, the actual films and TV shows themselves are stored on Amazon servers. So Amazon is one of Netflix's, um, or pardon me, Netflix is one of Amazon's largest customers in that regard. Uh, But Amazon has also secured lucrative contracts with the Central Intelligence Agency for storing and processing massive amounts of classified data. So there was quite a bit of thought and business strategy, I think, that went into that decision to construct that second headquarters just outside DC.
0: Yeah. What, what are, again, t- tell, tell our reader, like people like me, humanities people, what are big data analytics and how, how do they figure in Homeland security? I know this is, this isn't even 101. This is, this is dumbbell cybersecurity. So th- th- that's me. Big data analytics, what's
1: that? Big data analytics refers to the processing, cleaning, and analysis of massive data sets. And let me paint a picture for you and for listeners to kind of illustrate this and and distinguish it from what we might call ordinary data. Let's say for example you're working in finance and you're given a spreadsheet that has say 150 rows of numbers in it and that is part of a project that you're undertaking analyzing this data producing graphics and a presentation say for an audience of executives that's the kind of thing that i would term you know ordinary data big data gets us into the realm of a spreadsheet with say 1 million or 2 million rows and part of the difficulty with analyzing a data set that large comes down to computing power. If you or I were to pull up a one or two million row spreadsheet on our personal laptops, the laptops would freeze. They wouldn't be able to process that amount of data. They would choke. So it's about cleaning, you know, harvesting, processing that data, but it's also about mustering the computing power to make sense of it because again, there are limitations to the hardware's capabilities and your laptop or my laptop to to deal with that kind of thing. So um, I mentioned Amazon earlier and I'll I'll point to another firm, Microsoft here. One of the services that they have begun offering is hosting processing speed in the cloud. And so if you are a government organization or a business for that matter, or a research institution, You can contract with Microsoft or Amazon and say, we need X, we need Y amount of processing power in order to get through these data sets. What can you offer us? And a user can remotely kind of tap into that computing horsepower without having to physically have it in their office or their building or whatever. Um, So it's a clever sort of business arrangement, uh, but it's also offering us. A window into insights that we would not probably have been able to glean otherwise within the homeland security space, um, just to give you one example, you know border security is this perennial topic of interest. Um, you know, let's say we want to make greater sense of precisely who is coming across the border, what time of day they're coming across the border. Um, are there patterns? Do we see, for example, that unaccompanied minors tend to cross between Tuesday and Thursdays, uh, between 2am and 4am local time in Texas and Arizona, uh, having raw data that we can plug into analytical tools and then run analyses on, uh that helps give us insights that can contribute toward the border enforcement mission. Um, So that's one very specific kind of concrete example of the potential that big data analytics hold out for Homeland Security. And of course, there are other applications as well, too. Um, One initiative that's quite popular for people who travel by air is TSA PreCheck. There's another similar initiative for people who travel internationally, called Global Entry. But effectively, they do the same thing. You submit an application to the Department of Homeland Security for this sort of privileged access through TSA checkpoints or through border crossings, whether those are at airports or maritime ports or land ports of entry. The Department of Homeland Security vets you. They run a series of checks on you to determine if you're basically a trustworthy person or not. Um, and after having done that, they issued you this sort of special pass that gives you privileged access and flow through TSA checkpoints and through border security checkpoints. Tying this to big data now, one of the, the problems with sorting what I'll call malicious actors from the general public is this old cliche, right? Finding needles in haystacks. And so we can't, do much about needles within the Homeland Security enterprise, but we have it within our control to do something about the size and number of haystacks. And so, by getting more and more people enrolled and processed through TSA PreCheck, through Global Entry, we're effectively shrinking the size of the haystacks as well as reducing their overall number. And that frees up resources to concentrate on this narrow band of, say, 5 10 15% of travelers that require extra scrutiny. That entire process, Mark, of developing TSA PreCheck, of developing global entry, was facilitated by big data analytics. That's how that came about. And yeah. they're very clever initiatives, and they're quite popular with the traveling public as well. So they seem to be delivering on their promise, at least for now.
0: No, no, I, I use TSA. You know, it's, and it's it saved me a lot, of, a lot of time, a lot of time, and, and uh, annoyance of taking my shoes off. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. So the, uh, uh, but the the, the the idea here is you, you talk that those million, you know the, the, those million bits of data uh, that that come in, and the aim is to be able to look at that data and find trends, patterns, uh tendencies, probabilities, right, incidence rates. That's the idea. And then you can then you can adapt policies or 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 procedures to to handle it. That's the goal. And it's getting better and better, I imagine.
1: That's right. I mean the the buzzword that's thrown around is uh, data-driven policy making, right? And uh, that's highly prized at the moment. We're not going on gut feel. We're not going on intuition. We're looking at actual evidence that we have access to. And we're using that evidence to inform our efforts to develop and adjust public policy. That's what this is about. Um, And uh, I'm not suggesting that the process is somehow going to be perfect or infallible or something. uh, But I I do believe firmly, and this is a point we try to argue in, in the book, uh, that this is ultimately going to lead to smarter decisions that will protect the American public more effectively than than would be possible otherwise and and I see that as a very good thing.
0: How how concerned should we be about the the rise, the extension of a of a security intelligence apparatus, a homeland security apparatus inside the government that may not always be open to public scrutiny? Is this I mean, this, and I'm not talking about conspiracy, I'm talking sort of an inevitability that when we when we go into the, these areas that, you know, over time, things can end up going a little beyond the original intent. Is that part of the, the, the discussion?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, I'll point to two specific examples of this. Uh, One is that congressional oversight of executive branch agencies uh, is a very important function within our government. It ensures that executive branch agencies, there's leadership, and the people working within them are held accountable by the American people through their elected representatives in Congress. But there are a couple of problems with this. One is a, a basic knowledge problem. It is unrealistic to expect any elected representative to know enough to ask really deep, sharp, well informed questions of executive branch leaders. Developing that kind of expertise is the sort of thing that takes decades of public service. Um, So that's one problem. No matter how motivated a member of Congress may be in conducting that oversight function, they're always going to have a kind of knowledge deficit that is. Almost impossible to overcome. Uh, a second issue is government secrecy. And what I'm referring to specifically here is the overabundance of information that gets classified for national security reasons. And there have been plenty of academic papers as well as government reports published on this. So it's not exactly a secret. Um, but in extreme cases, you know, snippets of articles from the New York times are being classified at the secret or top secret level as part of a broader report. It just doesn't pass the silly test. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that sort of poisons, pollutes, helps to shape an environment where being overly secret is the norm and what is therefore reinforced and encouraged by organizational culture. And, There have been plenty of senior leaders to exit the intelligence community, to exit the Department of Defense, who then go on record as saying this is a big problem because it distances us from the American public to whom we are accountable and who deserve to know how we do what we do and why we do what we do, while still at the same time protecting intelligence sources and methods. Uh, So those are two really big, persistent issues that are going to be I don't want to say impossible to solve, but deeply challenging uh, for us as well as for future generations. You're ha- trying to reconcile very um, sharply opposed forces. And within government, at least, that's always quite quite difficult. Another issue, though, Mark, that you bring up is sprawl, just organizational sprawl. How many people are doing this kind of work in a secret or quasi-secret uh, environment um, the Department of Homeland Security itself, uh, last I checked, employs over a quarter million people. The total number of people who work for the U.S. intelligence community, meaning like the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, there are 17 organizations altogether. Um, that, that hard number, the total number of employees is itself classified. Um, but it's safe to assume it's between, I would say, 50 and 100,000. And I'm not revealing anything classified by saying that I'm just going off of what's been published in the public domain. So when you have that many people doing this kind of work veiled by secrecy, um, you do start to wonder if this is becoming problematic in some way. Yeah. There's a part of me that's somewhat nostalgic for the very early aughts of our intelligence community, like the office of strategic services, which was the immediate predecessor to the Central Intelligence Agency, which performed so admirably in World War II with very scant resources. They were fueled mostly by the intelligence and patriotism and courage of the members of the OSS. And they did an incredible job uh, in helping to uh, make Western powers triumph. So um, that history is worth, I think, reading and I would, I would recommend it to listeners um, because the OSS was a very special organization. And I, in some ways, I, I see future government reforms to the intelligence community, perhaps steering us back in that direction toward a smaller, more nimble, more agile, more streamlined uh, way to collect foreign intelligence as well as to conduct covert action when needed.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think in light of the absence of any major terrorist event in the United States since nine eleven, uh, we we got to call that a success of the of the homeland. I mean, tw- the, people were expecting several more. If I you know, in in those years in two thousand two, uh, several more events to happen because how do we stop them in this open society that we have? Uh, so that that's a that is something to feel feel was was admirable were there have there been threats that we we missed i mean i i i mean you mentioned the natural disasters we couldn't really predict those i i or maybe maybe they could have been i, I don't know. Are, are, are economic threats i mean bio is there any anything anywhere you think the homeland security project failed and i don't i don't it's not blame it's just uh things that they, it maybe couldn't couldn't have been foreseen because they were new
1: The short answer here I think is yes. I also by the way agree with you entirely that the absence of a major terrorist attack on u s soil along the lines of nine eleven constitutes a stirring success and it's something about which we should all be very proud. Because you're you're correct in characterizing the environment of that time. From you know, 2001 to 2005, the, the air crackled with the danger of al-Qaeda. And there was this sense that the public had to come together to muster their energies and attention to defeat al-Qaeda or to prevent al-Qaeda from advancing. But yes, it is impossible for any government, any society in my view, to focus intently on defeating multiple threats at once. I mean, that's something that human experience suggests is very difficult, maybe even impossible. So I'll point to a couple of examples here. We were successful in beating back the threat that al-Qaeda posed and ultimately defeating al-Qaeda itself as an organization, but that also gave rise to spin-off organizations that in some cases espoused an even more extreme interpretation of uh, Islamo-fascism i'm thinking specifically of like ISIS now in Iraq and Syria so that is i don't know if i would use the term failure but that's certainly yep. um, a development that i i don't think was fully appreciated at the time that in focusing intently on al-Qaeda there wasn't that deep recognition within the halls of government that this was going to cause other secondary effects, that battle against Al Qaeda. Um, Still on terrorism. I I don't believe that we did a terribly good job of anticipating the rise of domestic extremists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis in the United States. Now I want to be careful here because I don't want to, to paint a picture um, of, of a nation in which, you know, there are kind of neo-Nazis lurking around every corner, the way we kind of thought about Al-Qaeda in the wake of 9-11. Um, but there is evidence to suggest that they do pose a threat. Um, there have been a handful of instances in the past couple of years of electrical substations being sabotaged around the country. And these have made national news. Like
0: I've seen some of those. So we have an indication who did that?
1: Yes, we do. Uh, it's broadly believed that this is part of a neo-Nazi plan to disable the U.S. power grid, perhaps for months. And this would be part of a broader effort to perhaps carry out a coup d'etat um, or, or to institute, let's call them alternate state or local governments um, that are imagined by these groups. Um, the threat from these groups is still fairly murky and not well understood, but the phenomenon's being studied. But getting back to your original question, I mean, I do think that this is a trend line that we didn't pay much attention to. And now we are being forced to pay attention to it because there's actual sabotage happening on electrical substations in states like North Carolina and California. Um, a third trend, and I'll kind of wrap up my response to your question here, is the rise of what's called ransomware, which is a form of malicious software that locks and encrypts data uh, on the servers and networks of organizations. This and has then become they... yes, it, exactly. It,
0: and then the ransom, and they do, and do they let it go? Do they do they play ball if they get paid?
1: There's no guarantee that they will. Uh, If you talk to Christopher Wray, for example, who's the serving director of the FBI as we speak and record this, um, he would tell you basically the same thing, that even if you pay the ransom, there's no guarantee that you'll get your data back um, as it was taken. You may get only a portion of it, say, or you may not get it back at all. They may take the money and run. Um, And this is a big problem for Corporate America, mostly right now, but um, yeah. it, it's equally problematic for government agencies. And it's going to be a very difficult nut to crack because the stereotypical advice that you give to people who um, are victims of this is hey, don't pay the ransom. Well, that's very easy to, for you to say, but what if it means the failure of my business? You know, suddenly it becomes a lot more complex.
0: Yeah. The book is Homeland Security An Introduction. Professor Gibbons, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.